Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Odili Donald Odita taped live with the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska. Odita is featured in Point of Departure, Abstraction 1958 to Present. The exhibition is drawn from the Sheldon's excellent collection of two-dimensional abstraction and reveals how artists have used abstraction to advance ideas and ideologies from outside art's own history. It's on view through December 23rd. Odita's abstract paintings marry color and composition to history, sociopolitical investigation, and ideology. He has fulfilled major mural commissions for museums such as the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. Recent exhibitions of his work have included the Lohmeyer and Jeske Sculpture Parks in St. Louis and Ferguson, Missouri, the ICA Miami, the Sarasota Museum of Art, the Front International Triennial in Cleveland, the Newark Museum of Art, and more. On the second segment, David Hart joins me to discuss his ongoing Hammer Projects exhibition. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the program. Odili Donald Odita, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens's fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens's ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition, In Relation to Power, Politically Engaged Works from the Collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Odili Donald Odita, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. 
Thank you so much. I know you're interested in the relationship between utopias and utopian ideas and shapes and the construction of images. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how and why you construct images as you do. And so I wanted to start with utopias. When did you become interested in utopias? I've always been interested in utopias, I would have to say, without even understanding the term or uh, using the term uh, directly like that. I would say that thinking about the paintings I made as an undergraduate at The Ohio State University, I had uh, and was building a rapport with the idea of the organic, the inorganic, the contest between artificial and nature, what these, what this question is, what this meaning might be, what the differences are. And when I went to Bennington College, my work was really loaded with materials that were addressing this idea more directly. Uh, detrit- fake detritus in the sense of mulch sprinkled in the paint with uh, wires embedded, tubes that would be like stand-ins for pipes, drain pipes, this sort of thing. So the paintings were landscape, even if they were replicating a a representation of an imagistic landscape, they were landscape and landscape oriented. How back then, and then maybe how now, have you thought through how to represent utopia or utopian ideas within an abstract painted language? Well, I mean, when I look back and think about the term and, and what I was doing in the paintings, I think it was coming out of a general Western idea of progress within modernism, you know, just this idea of just advancement, the bettering of uh, this sort of thing. So it, it was thematic and say the painting, but also conceptual in the sense of what the position of the artist, how I was taught the position of the artist in undergraduate and graduate school. You know, it's, it's definitely Western. We talked about this even earlier today with, with your new book, these notions of how values are set in place before the fact, and that you're just educated, you're just moved along in these systems, belief systems that you may fortunately be able to recognize with assistance, how maybe blindly you've been led along the way within these belief systems. So utopia was something that was grounded just in the nature of the way painting was taught, even if you start to use it and work with it as an idea in your specific idea in your painting practice. Was there a moment at which you realized you were beginning to challenge that question of progress, that ideal, I-D-A-L, of utopia? I would have to say that I was always aware of it when I look back again, not in the way we're saying now, but I was aware of it, but directly became personally acknowledging it when I got to New York. It was during the time of race identity and identity politic issues. I met Okuyen Wazor, I met Ulu Aguibe, I met Ekeude, Salal Hassan, Octavio Zaya, and we were all working together on the magazine NKA, NKA, Journal of Contemporary African Art. And that's where it hit me head on. A lot of the illusions that I was on the surface dealing with more closely with the notions of the idea of the death of painting, postmodernism and the idea of painting. But then it became personal when I met Okui and everybody and started working with them on these issues with the magazine. So how did the art you were making change at that point? Well, I essentially stopped painting and started Mm -hmm. making uh, mixed media, photo-based work. And I was focused on dealing with this idea of the black body 
in, in mediated spaces dealing with that question. It was important for me to have gone through that. I was at that stage where I just didn't believe painting had the ability to speak, literally thinking painting didn't have the ability to address these things in a proper and adequate way. So I would, I stopped publicly showing paintings, but was working and making mixed media based work, which I now look at and see that I was working still as a painter, thinking as a painter while making that photo based work. But uh, I felt there, I felt an urgency to work that way until some years of experience through curating and visiting artist studios and writing about work. I was able, through all that work, I was able to come back again to painting and being at a residency called Art, Art Oh My. Yeah, so I was going to ask, what brought you back to painting? Was it ideas? Was it missing paint? Painters often miss paint. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, so I went to Art Oh My in 1998. I was invited, surprisingly invited there. Um, Robert Morgan initiated that invitation and uh, was very fortunate for me. I was able to bring my cans of paint because at that time, when I left graduate school, I wanted to just go direct and be direct with painting. So I used house paint and canvas, just straight up mm. house paint and canvas with gesso in between. I said, I'm just going to make paintings. And I came to that conclusion after having gone through so many artist studios, seeing so many different ways and different forms of art making. It, 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 it became a question of why wasn't I painting as well? I mean, if I'm seeing all this stuff, why not painting? And it became, I became freer with the notion of, of painting and not being bogged down with the, the Western idea of the death of painting, a Western idea that I knew that it has, it had a place, has a place. I kept it in that place for myself and went to Art Omai and just started painting on canvas. And my first big painting, I had a plan to make one large painting and then smaller ones. And the first large painting there that I made was called Wall Painting. And it's very interesting that it had that title. It was a lot to do with relationship to the space of the painting at that large as something that the body can enter or at least confront versus smaller paintings that are, I would see as the scale of a computer or a television set. Your paintings have certainly gotten larger since. I think we're going to talk a little later on about the commission you did for the Virginia MFA mm -hmm. in Richmond, which is probably about my favorite thing in, in a U.S. museum these days. I, I, I don't live that far from Richmond, and I, I, I get there several times a year, and it is, you walk into the museum, and you come around a corner, and then you look up, and it's just, it's, it's, it's one of the great things. I've, I've yet to see it. I still need to see it. I've not seen because of COVID. Wow, yeah. <laughs> my assistants were there, and it was, there was a scare during the install, but it resolved itself, but we were all, working together, me via Zoom and the iPhone texting and that sort of thing. Well, we're, yeah. we're going to get to that. We're going to get to okay. that. It's, it's, I just love also the, yeah, we'll get to it. I'm jumping <laughs> ahead. One of the ways in which I think that late nineties experience probably began to come into your work and thinking was that you began to make a questioning of Eurocentrism more important within your work. And you've talked a bit in recent years, in the last maybe half dozen years since we talked last, I think in 2014, about how you've come to think of the canvas's center, the, the center of, of the rectangle, as analogous to Eurocentering, uh, to Eurocentrism, as well as the centering of the construction of whiteness within Western consciousness. I think that's a really interesting idea. And as I've looked at a lot of your paintings since, I think 
I can see you decentering the center of the canvas, if you will. So how did you come to relate that set of ideas with the center of the place you do your thing, the center of a canvas? Yeah, I mean, it, it was two things. Uh, I remember in graduate school, it was, it was very technical oriented. In graduate school, I was you know, making my paintings and uh, Rochelle Feinstein was one of my teachers at the time. And she was saying to me, you know, what is my interest in creating, using, utilizing and dealing with a canvas space where things are jutting off the edges and jutting off, uh, going beyond the frame of the canvas. And she said to me, the frame of the canvas is what exists and everything that goes beyond the edge doesn't exist. It's like, that's, that's not the space of consideration. The space of consideration is within the frame of the canvas. And so that was really something I just, I just took it like that. I just remembered it. And it was a strong statement from her, something I thought about honestly, earnestly. Then in, in New York, when I was working with IKU Day and we were working with Unka, also with his magazine, A Rude Magazine, his magazine is more of a fashion style culture magazine. He talked to me and spoke about the, cent- the magazine as a centering space, as the space of power mm. and the, the stage. Like he said, that magazine cover, you know, when we were talking about it in, in critiques of say magazines like Vogue, where who gets chosen to be on the cover? What's who is selected and what kind of statement does that make when you have this information on the man cover? Because he was doing a series called Cover Girl, his this well-known series of his. So I don't know, maybe I fused the two together and I realized that this magazine cover is like the space of the square or rectangle canvas, that you have this centering power, this phenomena, this modernist phenomena of looking into the space that's within the edge of itself and tying Rochelle's to what Rochelle's statement to what Ike was saying, it made sense to me that then if I'm speaking and thinking about the West and in relation to the other being in that case for me, the African, how are we looking at painting as a centering space as a, then as a centered space, as the space of discourse, and then seeing it in relationship to Eurocentrism and then everything else that is unimportant or to the periphery as the space entirely of the other. Do we, are we going to consider the other and the relationship to the center? Are we going to consider the other as being part of the center or as I was experiencing, you know, in the world that you know, conditionally they were the cast off that was outside of this uh, stage. I was just going to say, it's a really interesting idea. I didn't mean to interrupt, but. No, but that, that's essentially it. So that helped me to really push this idea of the shapes and patterns I was engaging at the time where I wanted to make the uh, connection to this idea of a, a shape going to the edge of the canvas and possibly disappearing. And that connection was also to the idea of cinema with the stage credit, the screen credits going up and then disappearing at the top of the screen, let's say coming mm-hmm. from the bottom to the top or from top to the bottom. However, that this space, the phenomenon of this space as a visual space is what happens when the text disappears? Does it just, do you in your mind see it just continually floating up forever or does it just disappear and cease to exist? So my question about appearance, about existence, visibility and disappearance, disappearance versus invisibility, because there are two different conditions of visibility. You're, you, you exist, but you're not seen. Versus disappearance is just the extinguish 
the extinguishing of that knowledge. So these shapes were going back and forth from side to side because I was speaking about what happens here. What's happening here? Does it expand to infinity? Does it decrease to, to an infinity? Or do they, does this force of color just disappear? So take a painting like Passage, the Sheldon's painting, which is dominated, if that's not too strong a word, by these isosceles, these really acute. I haven't taken geometry since high school. I may be saying things I don't mean, but you know, these really yeah. <laughs> the wedges. stern, yeah, yeah. yeah, isosceles, triangly wedges. Yes. I was very bad at geometry in high school too. Do those wedges and triangles come into the work or advance in the work concurrent with, with the period you're describing? Because mm-hmm. they seem to be related to that idea of what begins to happen as you get to the edge of a, of a canvas or right. toward. There's still that implication. Uh, this is this is well forward from that, but there's still that implication. And what I'm trying to do here, what's actually happening is that as I notice in the work, there become a situation of multiple spaces or multiple horizons. I like to think of the fact that abstract painting for myself is, is very real and real and not only psychological and emotional and intellectual sense, but real and picturesque sense. And what I mean to say is if I'm looking at a blank canvas and, and, and a line is drawn through the middle of it horizontally, I might imagine landscape like sky and ground in the simplest way possible. So it's to say that it come, brings me to the real, that abstraction brings me, it forces of it bring me to the real. So for in this case with this painting, I'm dealing with that initial notion of the notion of beginning and potential beginning, potential end, or the impression of the beginning and the impression of the end. At the same instance, the paintings start to become, and at this time I, was, I went past a point where they were becoming slightly figurative and not in the sense of like objects that can be recognized, but the impression of beings or the impression of forces or the impression of activity within a space. So as I look at this painting, I see that there are a couple different centers. There's definitely the blue vertical that's in the center of the yellow wedge and the blue wedge that come in. And I look at that as an opening or a door or a vacuum. And then there's these strong verticals that are on the very right of the, my right or the left of the painting that are almost like I look at them as walking figures. And this is something that is a reoccurring metaphor or reoccurring situation in, in my work where I see these bands as figurative or a procession or a movement or a kind of direction of movement going toward that blue line. So the notion of passage for me that's the title I gave it, became this kind of representation of these multiple chambers or multiple doors opening up, like in a movie, you can imagine, you know, just opening up toward that blue line. And whatever is that blue line is, this force of verticality that's on the edge is moving toward it. The blue line is also a moment in this painting where things on either side of it, mm-hmm. shapes on either side of it are, are reflected or, or very nearly reflected. There's an echo of like force, color and force. Yeah. Which is, so is, I, I, I was really taken by that part of the painting and went back and looked at a bunch of other works, both before this and for a decade or so, well, 11 years, I guess now since it, 
And this is almost as directly as you come to reflecting something in, in a painting of yours. And I want to talk about how you avoid reflection in a minute, but while we're on passage, why were you willing to embrace something close to reflection here? And did that mean something for you referentially or metaphorically? You know, you, you live your life as a person. There might be things you think about at a certain point, certain points and stages in your life. And somehow they manifest in your real life, the way you might interact with other people and whatnot. And I feel there are stories also that stay permanent with you. You, you might come back again and again to that, to the notion of that situation or that event or the thought. And I think that there's something very mystical, but also very spiritual in this possibly. But also, you know, there's the drama, there's a drama of light and dark and the tension that exists between the two. There's a fantasia that one has as human being when you think about and talk about light and dark as opposing forces, when in fact they share each other, they share in each other. And this is something I've, I've become to understand better, the sharing of dark, that dark, which is seen as a place of fear, or, you know, one is, 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 is fearful, one is scared and terrorized, the place of dark, which is also occupied by the space of black, you know, by the space of black people, if you will, that it becomes something that's not only psychological, but that is damaging. When, when you talk about the way in which we can be prejudiced by these notions of these terms and then use them in language to define the way that we think about those terms. So light versus dark. And then I'm thinking, you know, my own work, you know, it's the truth of it. Color is, it's not, dark is not the absence of light. It's just another degree. It's just another, it's just another condition of light. Light is not the feeling, light is not the feeling of light. It's just another condition. They're together with, they're with each other. There's not a weight or a hierarchy between them. So this is the certain thing that I'm very interested in dealing with when I'm working with color. I mean, color has been a very political thing for me in the sense of understanding that and my earlier, earlier, earlier thinking, equating people of color with the use of color, the term people of color with the use of color. But it's become more complex than, than that. And for me, it does, and color holds so many different things for me, and I could talk about it forever, what it engages. But it's also about space. And it's also about, about psychological space and the psychological temperament. So when I got that painting doing what I'm doing, what it's going on, what's going on there, it's something I think about a lot, like painting in and of itself is a passageway, not only to outside of yourself, but into yourself. You know, it's a space that you can come, you can travel out of yourself to come back into yourself again. So the title refers to the painting itself and to the ideas that I have of what painting can do. And then there becomes this other subtext that happens with the notion of passing through life itself, passing through life. And what do you carry with yourself? What can you learn? What, what is the vision quest of life? That's fascinating. I hadn't noticed in your work that when you reflect forms, but not necessarily colors, that they generally are light and dark. I, I pulled a bunch of paintings in which you composed the abstraction along a, a diagonal, a literal diagonal, such as Fissure from 2015 mm -hmm. or, or Great Divide from 2017. We'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. And, you know, reflection in both American painting, going back to the 19th century, and in American political and cultural discourse is a specific ideological strategy. 
it goes back to Emerson, who I can make Emer- anything about Emerson these days, I'm afraid, but, but this one really, <laughs> this one really does go back to Emerson. And he offers it in nature as the perfect metaphor for how in a, in a, in a, in a Republican country, such as the United States, the electorate and the government reflect each other. And of course, when Emerson's writing, only, only white men could, could vote. So it's a, it's a thorough American political history and, 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 and metaphor. So it seems to me that you kind of dance close to using reflection, but in paintings like Fissure and Great Divide, you turn back from it. You kind of refer to it while making sure not to do it. Can I ask you, when you're saying reflection, are you talking about self? Can you explain? Yeah. Well, for Emerson, it meant Emerson liked all the meanings of the word, you know, both Mm -hmm. personal reflection, but also a mountain reflected in a lake. And so in passage, you know, you're reflecting shapes on either side of that, that bluish lavender line. Mm -hmm. And, And in a number of other paintings, like in Fissure, you're not quite reflecting shapes and colors, but you're creating a visual situation in which you seem to be referring to reflection, only everything's kind of been hit by an earthquake and is off a little bit. And so I wonder if, as you build these dominant diagonals in pictures, such as in Fissure or in Great Divide or in other paintings, if you're mindfully avoiding building reflections, two halves being a whole. Yes. I'm mindfully doing that. It's actually very complicated, but it's uh, it's it's interesting to me in the sense of one on one hand, I'm looking at the idea of 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 painting, and the idea of painting as something as like how can I say it like this idea of two halves make a whole, just as you said. But in the case, I'm talking about drawing and color, and how the draw drawing is is very structural. It's very sound and it makes the body, it makes, let's say, the structural body of a, of a, of a painting, like the girders in, a, in an architecture can make or form the body that's the skeleton of the body. So like with the color, what I'm trying to do is to complicate this notion of the body or the whole and saying that in a certain way, this, what I want to say is in a certain way, this body that we might assume is symmetrical, or we might assume is whole, or we might assume is grounded in a kind of predictability, one and two, may not be. Mm-hmm. That there may be difference that occurs not only within a body, but like say within or within a, a society, let's say, there might be these differences that occur within a society or under the body that challenge itself or complicate itself or make it more than just simply a stable being. That there is a certain kind of notion of co- the complexity of difference that comes in within identity, within cultures, within a state, within a space that is considered whole and hermetically sealed, let's say. So what I'm trying to do is, on one hand, speak in a complicated way, but in a specific way about the idea of painting as a complete space. And then I'm breaking it with the color. And I'm transforming the body with the color, or I'm shifting the body with the color. Understanding that color for me is this power to expand space rather than just fill it up as a design, as a rational design, or as something that is understood in one way only. But that there's the potential to be able to understand, like this painting, the one half is literally the other half in drawing, and it's split by this diagonal. But then the color takes on another kind of uh, it's another kind of rationale 
that breaks that predictable pattern into something else and makes you then aware of something else or makes you go beyond the idea that, oh, this drawing over there on the top half is right here on the bottom half, just flipped. Speaking of, of the use of color being political, your 2018 painting Red Line is another picture with a dominant diagonal. It's impossible to see the see a red line in a painting and a painting being titled red line and not think of redlining. How intentional was that? It was uh, intentional as the title is and the, and the color is in the line. I'm trying to find really very direct ways to speak about this because when I'm making these paintings, so much is going into them and I'm thinking about so much and maybe it's just best to just speak about them in just a list or just terms, but I'm seeing these two halves that repeat each other as a certain kind of dichotomy of painting itself and my relationship to painting as, say, a modernist object that becomes a postmodern object. I'm thinking technically about the painting when I'm doing these halves that repeat. Then I'm looking at them, at them as spaces or as territories. This idea that one territory, one side and the other side become different in the way that I occupy them with color, the way they become occupied, filled with color. And then I'm thinking about like that line, the way in which I am literally, and this is the thing about the symmetry, I'm using these spaces to break the painting. I want, I want to break that rectangle, literally break it in half, or in this case, in this shape, because I want to understand the space as a thing, as conceptually as a thing. And then this, the idea that's in the painting as part of that thing or the thingness of the object, the painting. So I'm looking at this space and I'm wanting to break the space to be able to break, let's say I'm trying to break the strictures or the construct of modernism. And then I'm wanting to use the colors to speak about difference and the ability of difference to make change, to change the way in which we understand this union within this painting that has the notion of being whole and then speak to a way in which color can break the body, the trap or the containment of the body and free the body from its rigidness or from its staticness or from its decorativeness that when we assume it all, we stop thinking about it. So color becomes very transformative in the way that it works with the line and the drawing in the painting. And this is what I'm doing in this particular series because it was a focus of mine for some time to do this symmetrical work where one side is the other side, but the color changes the relationships to make us not recognize that, at least at the beginning. I have a painting nerd question that's kind of a, a, a gear shift. There are occasionally, but only very, very, very occasionally right angles in your work. It, it almost seems like you have a rule or a near rule against right angles. Lots of straight lines, almost no right angles. I can probably count the number of right angles I can find in your painting on like one hand. Is that something you've thought about or had a rule against? I've thought about it for sure. And I think the right angles are always there. And they're there at the edge of the painting, the edge of the canvas, the right angles being the fact that it's a rectangle or a square. So I'm always engaging that notion in the painting, the, the, the Cartesian grid or, you know, the grid. I'm always engaging this 
And it's a play with this notion of stability again. I mean, the instability comes with not wanting to make a space that makes people nervous, but to speak about the state of the other, which is always nervous within the West. The lack of stability that one has who is called another within the Western space. The instability that the Western space pro provides forcibly upon the other in a lot of socio-political situations. So this is part of the nature of the off balance hmm. that comes in within this space, this centering space, this modernist Eurocentric centering space. See, I know that what I'm doing is I was educated in the West. So I know that I don't really, you know, I don't need to deal with any of this. I don't have to talk about any of this. I can just paint trees and the beach and whatnot. <laughs> you know, I can do any of that stuff. But if I want to be in the world and in the dialogue of painting as it is seen historically in the Western stage, I'm going to have to understand the West possibly better than the Westerner as, as an African to be able to have and engage in discourse in this space of power that has been that has superseded everything entirely in the world for centuries and centuries and centuries. So my dialogue and engagement is in this Western canon. And I know that, for example, needing to have straight edges and good paint handling and all that is my awareness of the primacy in the West where they use the lack of technique as a strike against you. They're only good with color, but they don't know how to draw or they don't have history. They don't have history in the adequate way that we hold and deem things historic. They don't know how to make a good car, you know, this sort of thing. So part of this is the sense of trying to understand what the term terms of excellence exist as to, to be able to go beyond it in my own way. That's the, that's the freeing part of say this um, traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder of existing as an other within the West, being able to realize, Oh, speaking better than the next person dressing better, being better at your job. Those are all actually aspects of stress disorder in my opinion. And to go beyond that is to be able to understand the freedom you could have in your life when you're not living under the laws and rules of what Western painting is or how it should exist, for example. So what I'm trying to do with color and with line and drawing are kind of becoming crazy in a certain way. And I feel like it's not about like crazy like loony, but like crazy in the sense of being able to turn the story upside down and then actually get to your own story in the process and get to your own space of references that you actually want to engage rather than only engaging things as they are presented through the academy. So the colors and the drawing and the situations of being topsy-turvy, in addition to the idea of straight lines and, you know, like good paint handling and all that sort of stuff are coming together to be able, for me to be able to make my own voice heard better and my own understanding of how I was educated, accepting certain things of how I was educated, but being able to create and make my own way in the process and finding other artists out there that I have affinity with. Well, thank you for that transition, because I wanted to ask you about two artists in the context of some of the things we've been talking about. One of them is Aaron Douglas, 
Douglas had a very specific relationship as a painter to ideas of progress. And he had, especially in his murals, but also in paintings like Let My People Go, which is at the Met, one of the ways he both pictorially pointed to progress, but also to, to a certain divinity was with these giant diagonal, not quite triangular, but these really strong diagonals that, that sometimes refer to light, sometimes refer to action, sometimes refer to movement, which is all a long way of asking were the ways he used diagonals ever important to you? Yeah, I mean, this work is important to me. This series of work, it's stuff, it's work I looked at when I was an undergraduate student. The story, the narrative, Let My People Go, this vision, this image, it's very obvious uh, what we're seeing here and what's going on here. For me, I was just also very interested in the the drawing, you know, the way in which uh, we can see those rays of light, that directional thing going through the space. I can't say that uh, this formulated the painting I make today. I can only say that I was very interested in this in the way that, you know, I was also interested in comic books and, and that sort of space. So for me, uh-huh. it, I understand, I understood this in the manner of that dynamic, not necessarily illustration, but the directness of force and line and the directionality of force and line that would create a kind of dynamic through the pictorial space, the picture space. That's interesting, of course, because Aaron Douglas was an illustrator too. University of Nebraska grad, Aaron Douglas, I was reminded earlier today. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other painter I wanted to ask you about in the context of one of the things we started out talking about is Stanley Whitney, who also mm-hmm. has specific ideas about how and why colors should be used. But the part I wanted to ask about is, is Whitney also resolutely avoids building to a center. He, he deliberately avoids activating the center of a canvas in a way that prioritizes it. And I, I suspect you came to your ideas maybe before you noticed that in his work, maybe I'm wrong, but I also kind of wonder if you and he have ever talked about that. Not, we, we talk about different things, but I've not talked to, to him about centering. I, I say, would say the same thing though in his work, the edge and the frame of the painting itself is, creates the center, creates the space you see within yeah. He's always um, shifting and dancing and moving in the in the painting, and he's he's a he's a he's an action painter on one hand. He's dealing with figuration, and in my way, I see it as figuration in the sense of like, are they windows? Are these units heads? Are they all like thinking heads in this space, or, or, or is it just soul? Is it just simply spirit and soul in each one of those colors? And then you see his figure the painter Stanley just painting in them. And he's doing this amazing thing, which I think is truly incredible. He's those, his painting used to be more Mark, Mark oriented. He hasn't stopped doing that, but he's done something brilliant where the color, that solid color is the Mark. It is that red is this, that is orange or whatever is made with the swoop of his hand moving his brush and making that color. So everything the action, the line, the space all become one thing at the same time. And the brilliance of the color is something else profound on top of that. So, I mean, he's somebody that I I look at the paintings, people might think they're all the same. That's the last thing I think, because in fact is uh, everything's unique. And it's a matter of looking at his work and saying, what is, what has he done now? And uh, that's the experience I have in looking at that. I think about his work quite a lot and, for me, our work is very different as well, like any, any artist can be. 
you know, I appreciate the things I've learned from his work. With my work, I'm really trying to, I understand, I see that I'm understanding color and line and, and shape in, in a very clearly different way. And it's a lot of it has to do with material in as much as the structure of drawing in the space. There's a, definitely that sense of decentering that's occurring. Yeah. It's always alive. It has this Gustin quality to it in as much as it just has this architecture, which is referring, referring to the painting itself. But his mark, it's still there and it still activates the color, the shape, and the imagery of the painting. We've talked about the frame of painting being canvas and rectangular or square a, a good bit. And I want to pivot to talking about when you don't have that. And that's in your mural practice, where often you have the opportunity to fill an entire given wall, or maybe in a work such as Procession, the 2020 mural at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, where you definitely don't fill the whole wall or walls in this case, and you utilize a lot of white space in, in, in between. What change in how you approach a surface do you have to make when you are thinking about a mural in a football field-sized space, such as the one in Richmond, versus when you're working on canvas? What do you have to flip or switch or do differently? It's all about scale, I think. I mean, I, it's, it's a, again, another complicated thing. For me, it's very simple. It seems to be easy for me in the sense of, I remember going to that place. I did visit the space before the painting was there. And I, I try to get a sense of scale, like physical scale, because painting is, is relates to the body in all ways. It's just the body is a part of the experience of a painting. So I'm walking through the space. I'm in this, you know, if you can actually see that, that staircase and then the glass alley walkway, yeah. walkway to that wall, I was in that room opposite this wall that has the painting to see the painting to see the wall fully and to take pictures of it for myself. So I had to go into that room, left the, this lobby space, went into the room opposite this wall, stood back to be able to see everything. Basically, the work is done on graph paper, eight and a half by 11 graph paper. Mm. That's how I initiate all of these installations. I'm working on graph paper and dealing with the scaling of the drawing to what will be the scaling of the work. And then as a painter, I'm, again, I keep saying this because it's a very important aspect of what I do here, I'm thinking conceptually about each of these paintings as individual bodies, because I look at it as if I made basically one, two, three, four, five, six, six paintings in this space. And then the white becomes part of the expanse of the connection between the paintings, dealing with this expanse of being able to focus within each body. If there was no white or no break it might be hard to see what's going on at all or be just as if I just kept the wall white all the way across the entire expanse of this uh, lobby. So the breaks are very important where they fit and where they're situated within the work. And then I was dealing with this idea of vision in the sense of seeing things from far away and from close up. The idea of the energy of being close to somebody when you sense them and then seeing them within the landscape. So the different pressures i was thinking about these pressures of stretching a space stretching a painting then stretching it this way going long and then stretching it like this way going big and closer and then at a certain point the very last one to the one that the panel that's closest to us let's say if we're looking at it as a space 
this becomes, and you stand in a certain part of, if you stand at the staircase, looking at the other end, you're going to see it almost like as a, as a movement within a horizon. This idea, consideration of the multitude going this way. So there's these movements that are body related, space related. I'm thinking of things like what is that relationship to that black element on the ceiling and how it cuts those wedges cut and how they relate to the painted pattern. I was thinking about quilts. Definitely, that was the, the oh. forefront of my mind, the notion of quilt and quilt making and how that becomes something that's a familial, historic, historicizing, cultural, and engaging the color of quilts I was looking at in this painting as well. Because the colors don't just imagine themselves out of nowhere. They're always coming from some kind of real source or some kind of source that I conceptualize from a real consideration. So there's a lot of this kind of, you know, painting technique. I don't want to bore the audience too much, but a lot of painting, technical painting, things that were going on in the way in which I constructed this work. Last question I want to ask before we open it up to Q&A. I want to wrap up by talking about the new work you've made that you're showing now in San Francisco. And there are paintings that use wood grain. So let me, let me describe that a little bit. So you've built some of this recent work using what's called reconstituted veneer, a type of man-made wood veneer, as, as I understand it. And I'm mm-hmm. far from an expert on the wood industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's made using actual wood, but is a mimicry of specific species. So what attracted you to reconstituted veneer and what histories, I think colonial histories, does it allow you to access? Well, I did an installation, I believe in 2015 in Orlando at the U.S. Federal Courthouse. And this commission was through the GSA. This courthouse is a bankruptcy court. Uh, I was given the opportunity to work in multiple spaces, three spaces, three different spaces, including even the ceiling. I saw this uh, very expansive center lobby with the wood panels, and that was my idea to work on those wood panels. And we figured out a way to get these painting, this painting on this very long corridor cut in two parts. It was a really beautiful installation. What happened in the process of that, these paintings, the paint seemed to float on the surface of the wood because of the nature of the grain and then the nature of the paint. And, you know, Jack Shaman, he saw this work and he was like, you have to continue this. You have to try to see what else you can do with this. So I started, you know, experimenting and working on wood panels. We had, you know, initial issues of warping and so forth, the weight of the wood and everything else. So we now have um, reconstituted wood panel veneers that with the aluminum core in the center, the aluminum core is like something that stabilizes the surface. It will not warp. They're delicate surfaces because of the laminate. But the laminate is what I've learned to understand is it's like compressed wood. And then it's just, you know, laminate, it's sliced into laminate. So it is wood and it is shaped to look like and mimic patterns. And it is painted and it is painted within the fabrication process of making these laminates. And I love the supreme like Tesla level technology of... (laughs) this construct and then painting on it with extremely technical, very precise acrylic wall paint. So for me, it's like I'm equating, the spaces become equated. This, this machine called the wood panel 
and then my machine as my the machine of me as the body and then this paint they all come together to really speak about the idea of illusion and perception and i'm looking at the wood panel and the coloration and the formation of the pattern as a space and then i'm looking at the a space that's a real space and a space that is simply wood and then an illusionistic space and then i'm looking at the paint as illusionistic with its color and color vibrations mm. that happen and come together and also literal as just paint on wood panel. So the question of optics happen when you're like, which is the, which is the space on top or which is the real space is, are they both illusionistic? Or are they both just real as material? What happens when we are dealing with a space called a painting and then the magic of image comes, to, comes forward. So there's the phenomena the technical phenomena of painting and as much as the philosophic phenomena of painting and as much as the, which you refer to also as the cultural, like I'm choosing specific patterns of wood and I'm not going to select others because I want to make reference to, let's say Africa or let's say exploitation of forests and landscapes and other things come into play, you know? And I, I just want to say one last thing about the installations for me, the target for me in the installations was the idea that all things are possible. What can I do with a painting? What can a painting do within a space? How can it operate? How does it function? What is, it, what is possible for a painting in space? And for me, this came out of just working as a painter on canvas and realizing that there are so many limits we place on canvas painting because, in fact, we just generally stand in the center of it six feet away. And, and, then, and, and then meditate and look in one-point perspective, which is, you know, if we can talk about the one-point notion of one-point perspective in the West, you're talking about whiteness yet again. So these installs are dealing with multiple perspectives, being in the street to see the work through the window, coming across, going in another room, moving through the space and seeing your body reflected in, in the space people taking pictures of themselves within the spaces to take and make souvenir, to put themselves into a landscape that's of their own decision because they could be two inches to the left or five feet to the right and still take that same picture of themselves. So they're choosing when they're standing in front of the work, all this phenomena. And then that comes back into my own painting, canvas painting, so that they feed into each other. And I actually was able to loosen my relationship, loosen up my relationship mm -hmm. to color through the immediacy of select uh, ready-made house color and wall paint color. But at the same instance, knowing that color doesn't work just by willy-nilly randomness. You have to be super specific about infinite in infinity. You have to be very specific about engaging infinity as an artist. And that specificity can ultimately and beautifully ground a work in a space that helps you to reflect on your identity, the identity of the artist and your relationship to the world. Odelia Donald Odita, thank you. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake 
is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. Welcome back. Next up, David Hart joins me to discuss his work on the occasion of a Hammer Projects exhibition at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. It's on view through January 2nd, 2022. The show features Hart's 2020 The Histories, Old Black Joe, two jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by musician Van Dyke Parks. Hart's work joins and interrogates three 19th century figures, American painter Robert Duncanson, Trinidadian painter Michel-Jean Cabazon, and composer Stephen Foster, whose song Old Black Joe has endured as a dying slave's lament, even though Foster mostly wrote for blackface minstrel shows. The Hammer presentation was curated by Ara Moschietti with Nicholas Barlow. David Hart, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Right on. Thank you. Good to be here. What about Robert Duncanson's 1851 painting, Blue Hole, Floodwaters, Little Miami River, now at the Cincinnati Art Museum, interested you? Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps, you know, some backstory is is worthwhile. Uh, Duncanson as a figure, first of all, was deeply interesting to me, specifically, you know, within this series that I've been or cycle that I've been working on for the past few years called The Histories, the first one being Le Mont Saint-Hilier, which was a commission from uh, the Beth Shalom uh, Synagogue Preservation Foundation. So it's an historic Frank Lloyd Wright building here in Philadelphia area. So it was a commission from them produce work in which for the building, they said fantastic Frank Lloyd Wright historic structure. What I was interested in was not Frank Lloyd Wright, not that I'm not interested in Frank Lloyd Wright or think that he's an interesting art architect, but I didn't want to make work about Frank Lloyd Wright. And usually when I work with architectural sites, they function for me as singularities. And what I mean by that is that they're, you know, highly compressed arenas through which we can examine an ideological concept functioning. And so one of the important historical facts around the creation of the Beshalom Synagogue or by Frank Lloyd Wright for the congregation was that this was their their second home. Their original home was in the Logan neighborhood of Philadelphia. And then just through migration patterns and suburbanization in the United States uh, in the 1950s, much of the congregation left 
you know, downtown Philadelphia for, for the suburbs. And so they had this new building made for them. Uh, the old building is now a black evangelical congregation. And I really love this idea of the architecture, you know, being this vessel that can accommodate various communities. And then it also made me think about the relationships between the black and the the Jewish diasporic stories. And so and the way that I work and usually finding a site through which I, as I said, can kind of explore these these ideas. And since the site had already been kind of previously chosen, instead, I started to think about historical figures who I could use as ciphers to help me examine the histories of uh, diaspora, migration, the specificity of site, etc. And so in this case, I was looking at Louis Moreau Gottschalk, who's a 19th century American composer who was born and raised in New Orleans. His mother's family is from Haiti, and they left during the Haitian Revolution. And many Creoles left Saint-Domingue and found their way to New Orleans, which was uh, another French community. So the work ended up exploring some of that kind of trajectory of Gottschalk's family, and I ended up going and filming in New Orleans and in Haiti. And really that kind of functioned as a blueprint in terms of using figures in the 19th century as ciphers to begin to kind of explore these ideas, as I said, of diaspora migration. And so with the next body of work, Old Black Joe, again, part of the history cycle, I continued using that methodology. But the sites that I chose here were Trinidad and the Ohio River Valley. And specifically, it was the ciphers were Michel-Jean Casabon and Robert Duncanson. The musical element is looking at Stephen Foster, who was contemporary with the other two, Casabon being Trinidadian and obviously Duncanson uh, working in the Ohio River Valley. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of set up the methodology, why I was looking at these artists, how I found my way to, to Duncanson. What was deeply interesting for me about Casabon and Duncanson is how they both were black participants within uh, major artistic movements. Casabon uh, with the Barbizon School in France, moving to and then and working in Trinidad, and then Duncanson, living and working in Ohio and Cincinnati, but also moving around. I mean, he spent the Civil War in Montreal uh, in a kind of self-imposed exile. I'm, I'm actually from Montreal. And so there was that kind of interesting biographical note. But he also, you know, he, he worked in Europe, in Scotland, in France, in Italy. And so he, he really is, in fact, both of them, Casabon and, and Duncanson are these, you know, these early black cosmopolitan figures, which was, you know, I think a position that I was really, really interested in exploring, that they had a particular kind of agency as they moved through the world that was fundamentally new and, and only really emerged in the middle of the 19th century. Obviously, the restrictions of slavery, so their own kind of legal status earlier would have not allowed for that kind of mobility. And so, I looked at a lot of Duncanson works. I was initially attracted to pieces that he had done in Canada. I think, you know, as I did more research, I also realized that I actually wanted to not just investigate, you know, whatever sites were suggested, but also to see what was possible in terms of occupying 
you know, the position of these two artists, at least physically in relationship to whatever subject they were painting. And so there was a nice corollary in terms of uh, the protected status of the landscapes in both the Maracas Falls paintings by Casabon and uh, the Blue Hole and the Little Miami River in State Park in Ohio. And so I could return to both of those sites and hopefully see something that was close to what both Casabon and Duncanson had originally painted. One of the elements you migrated, if you will, into, the, into your tapestry was, is the reflection of the forest in the waters of Blue Hole. In, in the 19th century, Ralph Waldo Emerson offered reflection as an ideal metaphor for American republicanism, for the way in which American government and the federal state reflected the electorate, which, of course, was then entirely made up of men culturally constructed of white. And you clearly made sure in your tapestry to include reflection. Why was the reflection of the forest in the water important to you? I think in terms of a particular kind of pictorialism, that was absolutely something that I was interested in. I was obviously looking at the original Duncanson painting and trying to make sense of that. The photograph that I made is actually, it's a composite. So um, what I did is I, I, I set the camera up and I think I got there early, like maybe about seven in the morning. And I stayed through to mid-afternoon. I made thousands of photographs, literally pulling the, the shutter, you know, every 15, 20 seconds, just capturing the light changing, but also specifically the illumination of specific elements of the landscape. So exposing for the sky, exposing for the tree canopy, the underbush, the water. Um, and then there's a, a beautiful rock face on the right hand side of the painting you know, waiting around until that was illuminated. And so the, the final image is uh, probably, I'd say, six or seven different images that have been photoshopped together. <laughs> you know, painters can do it, so. <laughs> and photographers always have, it's worth saying. <laughs> yeah, and so it's a composite of these images, you know, that allowed for it to function in the same way as, as, as Duncanson was able to capture the scene. And then, you know, then we, we send the image over to, to Flanders, where it's turned into a tapestry. I mean, if you were to look at the composite image, it's absolutely seamless. You really have no idea that as to what I did, I work with a phenomenal technician who helps me do a lot of that work. And it's, it's absolutely seamless. And it wasn't as though I was interested in a particular kind of verisimilitude vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the Duncanson painting, but really, I think, uh, just trying to understand the dimensions of the scene and not to have anything, uh, for lack of a better word, overshadowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have the images up on the website. People will see exactly what you mean. <laughs> a lot of your work builds or reveals transoceanic relationships, relationships between the Caribbean and North America, between Detroit in North America and Athens on the Mediterranean in Europe, between Polynesia and the Mississippi River. I could keep going, right? So understanding ideas and histories across these spaces has been primary within the, the field of historians for a couple decades now, transatlantic and transpacific histories especially, but accepting, you know, really transpacific colonial Spanish era art histories, I think that these ideas have been slower to penetrate and inform the art world. 
So how did you become interested in transoceanic histories and in joining them to, to the present? I mean, the first body of work that I did, and, 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 and thank you, I think that's a really yeah, beautiful way of kind of summarizing process that kind of manifested itself incredibly organically. So the first body of work where I began to kind of explore uh, these ideas was the Republic. Um, and so, you know, this kind of hybridization of Athens and Detroit. And it was really about, you know, as I was saying earlier, finding a site that for me is representative of a particular kind of ideological position. When I was making that work, I was thinking about the late stages of capitalism in neoliberal environment and kind of questioning whether or not we'd arrived at an end of history moment. And so thinking about ideological positions and political systems as operating systems that eventually have a kind of obsolescence and that they need to be replaced with something that, you know, serves society better. And there were two crises that happened almost simultaneously that I felt were deeply indicative of this, these failures. Uh, there was the, the Euro crisis in Greece and also the rise of the Golden Dawn, the right wing political party movement. This was back in 2013. Exactly. And then there was the bankruptcy in Detroit. And so both of these things are happening very, very closely together. And for me, they represented, as I said, this kind of late stage or final stage, if you will, in terms of thinking about the, possi the possibilities of neoliberalism and its effects. I mean, obviously, we, we, we continue on beyond that point. But I think in terms of, you know, a kind of crisis kind of reaching the surface, that was something that was on my mind and trying to use work to to address it. And so I was thinking about Plato's Republic as a kind of blueprint. You know, the, the film and uh, the associated body of work was about trying to create this hybridized city state that represented both places physically, but also represented a kind of ideal as well as a failure of a set of ideals. The ideal is represented, I think, in the pacing of the film and the scenes uh, through which I decided to focus on, which are quite uh, languid and paced in a, an incredibly kind of calm and direct way. I mean, it's, it's spending the day in the park and, you know, looking at people pass you by. What's important about that as a, an activity, <laughs> but also as a kind of scenario, is the crisis that's surrounding it. And so refusing to kind of turn one's head and look at uh, the spectacle being enacted. And so for me, it was an attempt to kind of separate the spectacle of, of these failures and how the news media decided to, to cover and address it versus how uh, a citizen of either of these cities might have understood, you know, the crisis that was happening around them. While I was filming in Athens, the person that I was working with helping me with locations, we would discuss where some of the protests would be happening in the city and how we would have to work around those so as not to get caught up in them. And, 
you know, my initial question to her was like, oh, is it, you know, is it safety? Is it really that dangerous? What's happening? You know, how do I, how do I begin to understand it? And she's like, no, it's, it's happening over there. And, you know, there was a kind of, and I'm not trying to diminish it and I'm not trying to, to, to suggest that they weren't incredibly violent and uh, explosive, but rather that there was this kind of split consciousness between the crisis and the crisis kind of being enacted publicly and people just kind of carrying on with their lives. And so the film was trying to, at least from an idealistic perspective, trying to address how people kind of carry on with their lives, despite the immensity of the moment that they're living through, but also recognizing that the crisis was present. To perhaps finish, you know, what, what that presented in terms of methodology of, of thinking, not necessarily dialectically, right, because, but I do think there is a dialectic that was apparent there, but rather thinking about kind of porousness or blurring of boundaries and, and recognizing that the work could be, be speculative, that it, it wasn't so insistent about the kind of actuality of sight, but also about taking an idea about a particular understanding of sight and allowing to allowing myself the agency to uh, to do something with it right to make it perhaps more uh, metaphorical and what that does is i think it allows for perhaps a kind of critical distance from uh, the specificity of the site and how the site functions and it allows me to think more broadly about what i like to call these kind of unstable terms and 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 those terms are uh, dimensionalized through the work, an understanding of uh, how those terms function. So be it neoliberalism, be it sovereignty, you know, be it uh, diaspora, that I can borrow from uh, the specificity of these sites, but then also function perhaps more abstractly in terms of how I aggregate them to kind of create meaning. Often in your work, you consider stressed environments, uh, Tuvalu, in Adrift, Moshe Safdie's Habitat Puerto Rico project in San Juan, even, maybe this is stretching it a teeny bit, Johnson Publishing in, in Stray Light, um, given, given the challenges the publishing industry was facing when you were making that work. What about precarity, if you will, not to use a John Acomfra word, <laughs> attracts you to exploring it and expanding upon it, or in the case of Adrift, you know, building a narrative from it? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it goes back to the point I was making earlier around unstable concepts. So for me, it's about finding sites that are expressive of a particular kind of crisis. So you don't go to a place where the idea is kind of so subsumed within the reality that um, nobody knows that it's present, but rather you go to an area within which it has surfaced, uh, where it's actively being contested. And so Tuvalu, for me, was uh, a dynamic environment in terms of thinking through concepts of sovereignty, right? What does it mean after the dissolution of the nation state? What happens to the individual citizens? What's their status wherever they go? So it was really, it was about going there to try and understand, you know, William Gibson talks about the future is present, it's just not evenly distributed. And so (laughs) it's about going to to arenas within which this idea of the future in some cases or the past in others is present, where you can actually witness it. And so for me, uh, Tuvalu was indicative in terms of thinking strategically 
through the concepts of, of, of sovereignty. You know, with Safdi's project in Puerto Rico, it was specifically uh, in response to, uh, the work was done in 20, 2017. So on the 50th anniversary of uh, Safdi's project in Montreal, Habitat, the original Habitat, and you know that that work, uh, the original habitat, was being celebrated as a you know as was Canada's 150th anniversary as a nation state, and so while everybody was focusing on and looking at habitat as a kind of success, I mean obviously it, it's been co-opted. You know I don't think that the 150th um, birthday celebrations really kind of took that into account. It was more about kind of celebrating the legacy of Expo 67, that as a fantastic project that emerged from it. But I, I use the moment as a kind of uh, dialectical opportunity. So if people are thinking about, you know, independence and uh, civic pride, that I could find projects that was begun the very next year in Puerto Rico and talk about the lasting effects of colonialism under for a project that was abandoned. The Safdi Puerto Rico habitat, exactly. It was abandoned. Its uh, remains were distributed through the island. Some of them repurposed, but many actually just kind of lost and, and as I said, abandoned. But, you know, it was also uh, thinking about Puerto Rico and, you know, it being an American colony and its status and its struggles, kind of recognizing its status as a way to kind of address broader broader issues of, of uh, colonization or colonialism. And Straylight, you know, absolutely. It was, you know, two important inflection points. One, as you suggested, the massive shifts, shifts rather, that were uh, happening in the American publishing industry, but also, you know, the first black president. What did that mean to business uh, or set of businesses that were focused on uh, primarily, a, you know, a black audience? And being one of uh, the most important records, uh, Johnson Publishing and their and their their magazines of the the civil rights movement. So if we think of you know the kind of culmination of their mission as you know kind of being embodied in some ways, what does it mean to have achieved that as a result uh, in terms of the relevancy of the the organization? So there's also a kind of introspection that's happening you know, within the organization as they begin to reflect on everything that they've accomplished, but also trying to figure out where do they go next. I want to finish by asking you about beauty. I think in, in your work, beauty it often exists as kind of a social and moral and ethical, and depending on the context, you know, a, a kind of religious force. And I think that a great example of that is the work you've done around the painter, 19th century painter, Charles Ethan Porter, at the Glass House in, in, in Connecticut. But I think it's also there in the Safdie work, which I should have mentioned was titled In the Forest, or Stray Light, in which every interior is a place we all want to live right away. <laughs> is fundamental to your project that beauty is a social and ethical force? And, and has, has, has that worked out? I mean, I love your characterization of beauty kind of existing in these, in a non-visual space. <laughs> <laughs> right. So characters characterizing beauty as, yeah, a kind of moral or ability to kind of uh, understand a particular kind of nuance that things become beautiful through a kind of intimate relationship with what they what they fundamentally mean and stand for. I think that's a beautiful characterization. And I'm going to I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> I'm going to keep that. I think in terms of the work itself. I don't think that beauty is necessarily, at least in terms of how I had been thinking about it 
previously as as a kind of evaluative criteria. It's something that happens as a byproduct of the work. I prefer to think methodologically. I prefer to think about the work being a response to research around uh, specific ideas. And so a lot of the work, and you see, you see as my work evolves that the methods I'm using to produce it are also kind of changing in response to the subjects themselves. And so sometimes beauty happens. There's a particular set of aesthetic concerns that are present within the research. And sometimes beauty doesn't happen, and at least again from a, a purely kind of visual perspective. So if you look at the Belvedere work, you know, that I examined a free market think tank in Michigan, you know, that's a structure that, not that beauty can't happen there, but <laughs> but it's not about that, right? It's about um, a kind of austere sobriety, right? It's about almost kind of clinical research of um, social and economic ideas. And there's a lot of artists that I really love who I think retain an incredibly kind of rigorous approach to engaging with different subjects. You know, we can think about Louis Baltz, for instance, right? And Baltz, Baltz occasionally makes incredibly beautiful work, but I don't think it's a priority for him. And that was something that it took me a long time to arrive at, was to recognize that, you know, I could let beauty happen where it fell and not, not kind of strive for it in a more overt way. I think one of the things that got me thinking of how you use beauty is a picture from Belvedere, and it's a picture shot at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, which is a right-wing think tank in somewhere in Michigan. And it's a picture of a bookcase, and bookcases are always pretty. But half of the photograph is a cubicle with a little black and white sign on it that says fiscal policy cubicle, which is ugly in all possible ways. And I, I just think that picture, <laughs> I can't, can't finish with a straight face. I just think that picture is really funny. <laughs> But I think it's it's kind of the antithesis of David Whitney and gardening at, at Glasshouse. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at is, you know, sometimes, you know, you have these encounters and and you're like, oh, no, beauty's going to happen here. Right. Nothing I can do about it. It's it's all over the place. And you just need to kind of figure out, like, how you're going to wrangle it. And then other times you're like, there's no amount of of projection or you know, aestheticization that I can <laughs> perform that will try and yield something beautiful out of this. But, you know, at, you know, humor is also a, an incredibly interesting strategy and product. And so, you know, taking a more deadpan approach in the case of Belvedere yielded its own kind of result. Deadpan my ass. That's intentionally hilarious, if you ask me. <laughs> David Hart, thanks very much. <laughs> really my pleasure. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.